Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on the 7th of March 2011. Newcomers, I always suggest you look into cuttingthroughthematrix.com. That's the main website. You'll see a bunch of other sites listed there. These are the only official sites I have. And anything else isn't mine that you'll see out there. And there's lots of stuff out there by other people uh, with my name on it. So anyway, go into the website there. Help yourself to the audios. There's hundreds to choose from where I go over the big picture uh, of this world system and give you shortcuts, hopefully, to understanding how it's run. And it, it takes a bit of a, a stretch of your credulity to start with because you've been conditioned into thinking via the media. In fact, the media does your thinking for you and your reasoning for you. It even gives you the sides to choose from in any argument. It's, it's a scientifically um, controlled system. We've all been born into it, and you have to crash out of it and accept the fact that you're run by a completely different system than the one you've been taught to believe, a sort of democratic governmental system. It's way above that, of course. Anyway, help yourself to the audios, and remember you can, help, you can buy the books and the discs I have for sale at cuttingthroughthematrix.com. From the U.S. to Canada, you can purchase using a personal check or an international postal money order from your post office or send cash. Or you can use PayPal. You'll see the PayPal donation button on the com site. Use that and follow it with an email uh, to with your name, address, and order, and I'll get it out to you. Across the rest of the world, it's the same thing. Uh, You've got uh, Western Union, MoneyGram, Cash, or PayPal. Use the donation button and follow it with an email, name, address, and order. I'll get it out to you. And hopefully that will... Keep me creeping along. Believe you me, everything's shot up in prices here in Canada too. Even though the claim weren't hit so bad by the the big con game of the bank crashes, as the rest of the the the, the U.S. was and Latin America, but uh, everything's tied to the U.S. So food's gone up about 35 percent in the last six months alone. It's still going up today. In fact, in fact, they're telling us they expect another 35, 40 percent increase this year alone. So the big agenda is on target to austerity, as they want to train us all across the world in a globalized system of consuming less. And I've said for years, this really means that um, your disposable income, those things you would purchase uh, that were outside the necessities, will be gone. You'll be paying everything on fees and taxes for the bare necessities. And that is the world that's planned to come in. And uh, remember, too, there's a donation. You can also donate straight donations to cuttingthroughthematrix.com. And uh, there's not enough of those, believe you me. And the more I get of those, the better, because, as I say, it's a lot of... This isn't a, a job. It's not coming on the air for one hour. Uh, this is more than a full-time job, and it's seven days a week. And I, I wouldn't wish on anybody, believe you me. And the only reason I came out in the first place was to start swaying the patriot movement into understanding the even bigger picture instead of the usual navel-gazing that they were doing for so long and show them the big agenda worldwide 
and how it was to be implemented and how it, it already parts of it had been implemented and the big organizations and big clubs, you might say, that controlled their system. And it's happened to work, which is awfully good because now more and more folk are understanding that we truly are under a global tyranny of international corporations with the CEOs, as Carl Quigley said, uh, acting um, in concert uh, with governments. Governments are puppets to the CEOs of big corporations. And uh, this is the new feudal system he talked about bringing in. And he should certainly know, since he was the historian, official historian for the Council on Foreign Relations, and he taught lots of the diplomats that are now in the U.S. government. Back with more after this break. Hi folks, we're back and this is Cutting Through the Matrix. Tonight I'll put links up. I'm going to put links up, remember, on all the topics I mention here so you can look them up for yourselves and maybe copy them for posterity, who knows what. But uh, tonight I'll put a link up too to Michael Moore's latest talk at Wisconsin where he stood up with the protesters there who were uh, really threatened to lose their jobs and their pensions and all the rest of it. Now, Michael Moore is a bit of an enigma. So always, always, always get the heroes given to us who say all the right things. And he does go through the formula, and he does go through the facts that um, the city isn't broke and so on, and uh, the state isn't broke. It's the basically it's the biggest con of the age because he says it's the heist of the century where the bankers basically had set up together to plunder the country and get the taxpayers to bail them all out with their plunder, as extra on top, of course. They always have gravy on top. And uh, he said, too, that uh, Wall Street threatened to collapse the economy altogether and just you know, lose everyone's pensions, They're all, uh, close all, down the, all the workers down, all the factories down, unless um, uh, the government bailed them out. And then months later, they give themselves billions of dollars in bonuses, which is all true. And it's, but it's happened worldwide, you understand. This didn't happen by itself. It was worldwide. It wasn't some chain reaction either. It was worldwide. It was planned this way. You don't have massive think tanks working uh, with the top economists that didn't see this coming. It's planned this way to bring us into this stage which they call austerity. Um, so many people talked about that this coming age of austerity back in the early 90s, in fact, at the CFR level and how they'd have to make it happen. Look at all the speeches Mr. Rockefeller has been given for the last 30 years on this very thing, how they'd bring the world down and massively cut consumption. And uh, you're living through it all happening today under the guise of, oh, this is all separate from that. Everything's separate from each other. No, these are all connected because the money boys at the top all know each other. They know where they're going. They know the big agenda. And as I say, you've got to read Tragedy and Hope and the Anglo-American establishment by Professor Quigley to understand any of this. Now, he taught at Georgetown University, and he was a guy who put forth guys like Bill Clinton for road scholarships that end up working towards the global government. If you understand road scholarships, you you can't be bored looking into them, then tune off and and go in somewhere else and and listen to some alien stuff or whatever. It's up to you. But uh, this stuff is well-documented. 
and it's a historical fact that these clubs exist to bring in global governance in a socialistic-type fashion. And by that I mean that it's going to be run by a, fa- a fascist group at the top, which it already is, of extremely wealthy people. That's why Rockefeller is on board. That's why Rockefeller himself has said, when he thanked the press for never leaking out information to the public about the various Bilderberger meetings and the CFR meetings, he said it's far better that an elite group of bankers and intellectuals run the countries than leaving it to the auto-determination of sovereign nations. Old, old plan, and we're going through it. So Michael Moore doesn't mention that, of course. He just mentions uh, the banking plunder, which is all true, and, and so on and so on. But he's not ignorant of the CFR. He's not ignorant of who runs the country. He bumped shoulders with a lot of these characters. And the guy he works with in Hollywood is the brother of uh, Emmanuel, the famous Emmanuel. They went back to Chicago there. So they know exactly what's going on. And at the end of it, his speech, the whole thing was about vote. When it comes to election time, we'll vote. Well, we know from Quigley's work that he said over time it wouldn't matter which party you voted for because they were all from the same, you might, you might as well say a class, from the same class of people, which they are. And they're all pre-vetted before they get into government, not by the public, by the, by the pre-vetting societies that run them, basically. So they don't, they don't serve the people. They're all on board with the global agenda, and they get massive perks and payoffs for going along with it. It reminds me, too, I remember reading Peter Newman's book on the Bromptmans. It was quite a good book. It was an authorized version of the Bromptmans, uh, and it tells you, uh, it gives you little warnings, this is how you read books, it gives you little warnings by giving you the, the history of his predecessor who was called in to do a biography for the Bronfmans. And they were given access, this guy was given access to a lot of their information and personal letters and communications and so on. And in the Roth, one of the Rothschilds, uh, uh, one of the Rockefeller's apartment, or sorry, not Rockefeller, it was, he did one on them too, but this one was in the Bronfmans. And uh, it turns out he read something he shouldn't, and he went through a window from a very uh, very high-rise building, and that was the end of him. So, so Newman was warning you at the beginning of the book they couldn't tell you all the truth, or maybe not even a lot of it, is telling you what happened to the predecessor. But he did say that when old Sam Brofman was doing the, the whiskey rackets during Prohibition, and by the way, these guys uh, helped to fund the politicians to pass Prohibition because they already had the, the system set up where they'd run it and make billions out of it, which they did. And uh, Sam's brother, I think it was, shot a cop out in Alberta away uh, during Prohibition because they were running the booze down to the States. And uh, Sam boasted, well, I'll, he'll get off with it. He says, and he was asked why he knew that he'd get off with it. He says, well, he says, every politician that's in the Canadian Parliament, he says, I put them there. And nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. They're all bought and paid for. So we can talk all we want. We can use banners all we want to try and change the system. It doesn't go any work. You see, it's a system that you're used to using, which is totally corrupt. And its election system is totally corrupt. If an honest man got in there, he'd be killed so fast. If, if by chance, somehow... By a miracle, he was just beamed into uh, government. He would be, he'd be, he'd be dead before he could utter a few words. That's how how bad things really are in this day and age. It's utterly, utterly corrupt at the top. Now, 
In the early 90s, Maurice Strong, who's a big player with the United Nations, he's been head of the World Bank before and a few other divisions, and he was sent over to China uh, to set up the office to help uh, get the World Trade Organization, using your tax money to get the factories, the physical factories, all set up all over China and to get all the, the Western countries to fund all of that, which we did. We fund for the transfer of your own factories abroad. And... Uh, he, they pulled them out of there and brought them to Canada for a couple of years uh, to privatize the, the electrical systems for Ontario and made him chairman of the board. And in the Toronto Sun, he had said back then, he said that there will be coming power shortages. Uh, uh, and, of course, he said uh, uh, main factories that are left are very important government um, uh, offices, offices and so on will all have diesel energy backups etc to ensure they continue but he says this is definitely coming these power shortages they already had a plan this austerity remember idea uh, f- from before even he came along and said that in the era 90s so with that in mind here is um, an article today BBC News 2011 is crucial year for the UK energy it says here, it's a video, I'll put this link up for you to watch. It says, the UK is about to embark on a huge process of change in the way it produces, transports and uses energy. Steve Holliday, chief executive of National Grid, explains how 2011 is the crucial decision point for investment decisions that will have huge long-term implications for the UK's energy policies. Now, Murray Strong taught in the 90s about rationing it, you see, and that's what, of course, is coming. And John uh, O'Sullivan uh, also has this article here on the same thing. Power supplier admits going green will put the lights out in Britain. British families have been told the shocking truth about the price of green energy. They must prepare to go without electricity for extended periods, warns the UK's top electricity boss. Steve Halliday, National Grid's chief executive, issued a stark warning over the consequences of the UK going green, speaking to, to listeners to, uh, on today's uh, Radio 4 Today, it's called Radio 4 Today program. The link's there if you want to listen to it. The shock admission was immediately picked up by the Daily, Daily Telegraph in the article, Era of Constant Electricity at Home is Ending, says Power Chief. Britain's largest energy supplier, National Grid, is one of the most lucrative privatised monopolies in the world. It deals with the cold realities uh, to a nation already committed to spending £18 billion per year on unnecessary, unpopular green taxes. You're going to be taxed into the ground. Are you getting the, 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 the are you beginning to see why this massive build-up of internal militarised police has been going on for years? You know what's coming down the pike, and they know what's coming down the pike. And I've got a lot more to push on you. An awful lot more to push on you. And they're all ready for it too. Because it was planned a long, long time ago. So the Brits were told, wind turbines, you're going to get them whether you like it or not. The colossal company is hell-bent in pursuing an ill-conceived agenda to make its energy policy more environmentally friendly by focusing on wind power. Well, I'll jump from there and I'll put another article up. This is, and this is from Mail Online. Why the 250 billion pounds, 250 billions? This is a country that's been ransacked, plundered, raped by the banks, raped by the, the governments, raped by the EU, the, the, the European Union. And here they go, just, just putting, it's like sticking the bayonet in at the end after you've shot someone 
uh, stick it the bayonet and twisting it as much as you can to get the last grunt out of them. Why the £250 billion wind, uh, power industry could be the greatest scam of our age. And here are the three lies that prove it by Christopher Brooker. It says, Scarcely a day goes by without more evidence to show why the government's obsession with wind turbines, now at the centre of our national energy policy, is one of the greatest political blunders of our time. Under a target agreed with the EU, Britain is committed within 10 years at astronomic expense to generating nearly a third of its electricity from renewable sources, mainly through building thousands more wind turbines. But the penny is finally dropping for almost everyone, except the politicians, that to rely on windmills to keep our lights on is a colossal and a very dangerous act of self-deception. And we'll go in and explain why that is this big, massive con that's coming to place near you across the world. Back after this. Hi folks, we're back, and this is Cutting Through the Matrix. And talking about the inefficiency of the wind turbines, and this article goes on to say, it says, take for example the 350-foot monstrosity, familiar to millions of motorists who drive past it as sluggishly as it sluggishly revolves about the, above the M4 outside Reading. This wind turbine performs so poorly, working at only 15% of its capacity, that the £130,000 government subsidy given to its owners was more than the £100,000 worth of electricity it actually produced last year. Meanwhile, official figures have confirmed that during these freezing, windless weeks around Christmas, when electricity demand was at record levels, the contribution made by Britain's 3,500 turbines was minuscule. It says, uh, to keep the homes warm, we were having to import vast amounts of power from nuclear reactors in France. That's because they won't let them have them in Britain. Wind turbines are so expensive that Holland recently became the first country uh, in Europe to abandon its EU renewable energy target, announcing that it is to slash its annual subsidy by billions of euros. So unpopular wind turbines, except for the guys that are making them and getting the government contracts, eh, that our own government has just offered bribes to local communities in the form of lower council tax and electricity bills. Well, don't take the bribe, because once you're all on it, they'll jack up the price again. In Scotland, the 800 residents of the beautiful island of Tyree are desperately trying to resist Alex Salmon's plans to railroad through what will be the largest offshore wind farm in the world, covering 139 square miles off their coast which they say will destroy their community by driving away the tourists who provide much of their living. So riddled with environmental hypocrisy is the lobbying for wind energy that a recent newspaper report exposed the immense human and ecological catastrophe being inflicted on northern China by the extraction of the rare earth minerals needed to make the giant magnets that every turbine in the West uses to generate its power. They're always fixing them, too. It costs more to maintain them than, than, than what, how it, what it produces. Here in a nutshell are some of the reasons why people are beginning to wake up to the horrific downside of the wind business. And since I, I began writing about wind turbines nine years ago, I've come to see how the case for them rests on three great lies. By the way, uh, the big CFR boys and the Fabians were talking about wind turbines back in the 1920s to come. And, and H.E. Wells wrote about them if you think this is just happening by chance. It says that the first is the pretense that turbines are anything other than ludicrously inefficient. 
the most glaring dishonestly, dishonesty peddled by the wind industry and echoed by gullible politicians is vastly to exaggerate the output of turbines by deliberately talking about them only in terms of their capacity as if this was what they actually produce. Rather, it's the total amount of power they have the capability of producing. The point about wind, of course, is that it is constantly varying in speed so that the output of the turbines averages out at barely, at barely a quarter of their capacity at any one time. This means that the 1,000 megawatts all those 3,500 turbines sited around the country feed on average into the grid is derisory, no more than the output of a single medium-sized conventional power station. Furthermore, as they increase in number and the government wants to see 10,000 more of them in the next few years, it will quite farcically become necessary to build a dozen or more gas-fired power stations running all the time and emitting CO2 simply to provide instant backup for when the wind drops. It's true, isn't it? It's so crazy. The second great lie about wind power is a pretense that it's not a preposterously expensive way to produce electricity. No one would dream of building wind turbines unless they were guaranteed a huge government subsidy. This comes in the form of the Renewables Obligation Certificate subsidy scheme paid for through household bills, whereby owners of wind turbines earn an additional £49 for every megawatt hour they produce and twice that sum for offshore turbines. That's why so many people are now realizing the wind bonanza, almost entirely dominated in Britain by French, German, Spanish, and other foreign-owned firms, is one of the greatest scams of our age. And the third great lie is that the industry is somehow making a vital contribution to saving the planet by cutting emissions of CO2, because it's not. What other industry gets a public subsidy equivalent to 100 or even 200% of the value of what it produces? Just corporate welfare is just corporate. That's where the real welfare is, the big bucks. Not the people at the bottom lose their jobs. We may, we may not be aware of just how much we are pouring into the pockets of the wind developers because our bills hide this from us. But as ever more turbines are built, this could soon be adding hundreds of pounds a year to the bills. When a Swedish firm recently opened what is now the world's largest offshore wind farm off the coast of Kent, at a cost of £800 million, we were told that its capacity was 300 megawatts, enough to provide green power for tens of thousands of homes. What we are not told is that its actual output will average only 80 megawatts, a tenth of that supplied by gas-fired power stations, for which we will all be paying a subsidy of £60 million a year, or £1.5 billion over the next 25-year lifespan of the turbines. And on and on and on it goes. Because, again, like everything else in this world, it's a big scam. A big scam, folks. You see, again, too, it only worked, too, if they did kill off an awful lot of the population and have a smaller population down the road. Even that smaller population would have to earn so much to pay off in taxes to keep these darn things going in the first place. It, would, it wouldn't be feasible. But this is the nonsense we're fed because science rules today, you see, and of course the big uh, sharks, the big psychopathic sharks who own industries and investments, they smell it coming and they're in like a shot to make sure they get their fair share of all the blood that's spilt from the taxpayer. Back with more after this break. You're 
listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. Hi folks, we're back, cutting through the matrix. You know, Europe has already done what they hope to do with the Americas, the integration, you see. And during the free trade negotiations a long time ago, before they did the NAFTA deal, they actually talked about setting up a new parliament for the Americas. And um, they, they even buzzed around Montreal to be the new place to, to, to be. And they'd set all the big banks here and so on. But uh, they are integrating year by year, more integration. And they actually said to the CFR they would use this terrorism thing to, to get closer ties, which means integration with the U.S., and they'll use that to their advantage, which they have been doing, of course, under the guise of security and all the rest of it. They are sharing their, their, their customs duties together. They're sharing their computers on all citizens with the U.S. and Canada uh, and w- with, the, with the RCMP, CSIS, and uh, the CIA, FBI, and all the rest of them. So there are no, no real nations. We've just got this pretense as we go down the tubes under austerity and, and the banking plunders and so on, which, again, are all used to their advantage because they were engineered to do so. Now, in Europe, they're trying to keep this massive new Soviet together. And Mr. Van Rompuy, Herman, they call him Van Rompuy. Just call him, you should just call him Herr Rompuy. You know, Herr before, who had big ideas too. And it says, Euroscepticism leads to war. They're trying to keep this mammoth together, this big corrupt mammoth, this anti-democratic system that just plunders every country for the big fat cats on top who run it. It says, Euroscepticism leads to war, this is what he says. An arising tide of nationalism is a European Union's biggest enemy, Herman van Rompuy, uh, the president of Europe, has told the Berlin audience. This is the same guy that said, in the last, the last time he opened his mouth, he said that the nation state is dead. And he was awfully pleased with that. Euroscepticism leads to war and rising tide of nationalism, the European Union's uh, greatest uh, problem and so on. It says, EU founder President Van Rompuy delivers his State of the Europe speech at the uh, Pergamon uh, Museum in Berlin. Uh, Rompuy linked hostility to the EU and the idea that countries could leave the Union to revival of aggressive nationalism. No, I think it would be self-preservation, uh, the way they're getting plundered and taxed to keep this behemoth going. It says we have together to fight the danger of a new Euroscepticism. This is no longer the monopoly of a few countries. He said in every member state there are people who believe their country can survive alone in the globalized world. It is more an illusion. It is a lie. He says the controversial comments made on Tuesday come less than a fortnight after David Cameron, who's the Prime Minister of Britain at the moment, at least he's the puppet, declared that he was a Eurosceptic after his grueling Brussels summit battle to block a sharp increase in the EU budget. That's more tax money from Britain to the EU, you see, at a time of national austerity again, meaning poverty, you know, belt tightening. Bill Cash, the Conservative Chairman of the House of Commons European Scrutiny Committee, said entirely, he entirely repudiated a link between the Euroscepticism and the rise of nationalism. He says it's not anti-European to be pro-democracy. See, the EU is not a democratic institution. It wasn't designed to be. The problem is that the democratic base for the EU is waning or wanting. He says the solution to the rise of the far right is proper democracy exercised through national parliaments. 
Clarifying their remarks, a spokesman for Mr. Van Rompuy has stressed that he was not talking about Mr. Cameron's brand of Euroscepticism, but about those people who want to leave the EU. It's nothing to do with what Mr. Cameron thinks. It's a point that Britain or other countries are not able to survive on their own. I'm sure Mr. Cameron would agree with that, he said. Then it says Downing Street declined to comment. Dan Hanna, a Tory member of the European Parliament opposed to EU membership, dismissed the idea that countries cannot go it alone. Norway and Switzerland seem to be scraping by somehow with higher standards of living than anyone else in the EU. Neither seem to have been involved in a war in recent years, he said, and they're not getting taxed into the ground to keep this mammoth going. So, so they're determined to keep this massive thing. See, they planned it a hundred years ago, this amalgamation. Uh, with the Milner Group, which became uh, the Royal Institute of International Affairs. They planned it. They set up the, the machinery to integrate Europe into this big mammoth, uh, again, non-democratic system, and the U.S. is supposed to copy it with Canada, Mexico, Chile, and a few other countries in Latin America, eventually all of Latin America, and the Caribbean, I should mention that too. And it's not democratic. It's not set up to be democratic. But this is the, the farce we're, we're, we're given uh, as they try to, to basically label folk who want to leave it as nationalists and, and almost like Nazis, you see. And to show you this new system that's coming in, too, we've already seen all the bankers getting their billions of pounds and dollars uh, bonuses for the year. You know, it's just incredible as it goes on after all the bilking of the public, this, this, this public rape, really carried out publicly, a public mass raping of the public, and, and here they are just dishing out billions to each other and congratulating, slap themselves on the bank at Wall Street, saying, we'll pull that off again, and it worked again, just like the last time, and uh, it's still ongoing yet, of course. And we're, we're, we're all put down as collateral to pay off the money that was borrowed to bail them out from another group of bankers and your children's children, and your children's children's children, and so on it goes down, down the line. That's slavery. If you don't know what that means, if you're born into paying off a previous generation's debt, you're born into slavery. And Jefferson said that too. Now, the British Petroleum that made the, the massive mess in the Gulf of Mexico are giving themselves massive bonuses too. Because no doubt the taxpayer helped to bail them out there as well and paid a lot of the costs for the cleanup. BP director state bonuses for a year of Gulf of Mexico oil spin. Two of BP's most senior directors have taken bonus payments for their work in the year of the Gulf of Mexico oil spill, although the new chief executive, uh, Bob Dudley, waived his reward. He'll get paid later. Byron Grote, financial director, uh, and Ian Conn, head of downstream, had their £800,000 and £724,000 salaries and benefits topped up with rewards of £380,000 and £310,500, respectively. The bonuses amounted to 30% of the full potential payout. The BP's annual report also revealed that Tony Hayward, the former chief executive who left the company after the worst of the crisis, will get almost £100,000 a year for his work as a non-executive of BP's Russian joint venture, TNK-BP, so they call it. He left the board in October with £2 million pounds in salary and severance payments plus a £600,000 a year pension. I wonder how he'll manage on that, 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 that paltry sum, eh? That £600,000 a year pension. 
and and a hundred thousand pounds as a a little gift and so on. And here's these people in Wisconsin trying to keep their pensions and, and their jobs going and the whole thing. Eh? And you, as I say, and you wonder why you've got a police state formed around you and built up militarized police for years and years under the guise of terrorism, folks. You know what it's really all about was coming down the pike, don't you? Don't you? Do you? Have you caught on to that? Anyway, according to the report, Mr. Dudley denied himself a bonus in what was a painful year for a BP. In October, Mr. Dudley insisted that incentive payments wouldn't should you be linked to safety performance. Oh, what a joke. Anyway, there's your rubbish about that, as the media doles the rubbish out to us. And we're supposed to be obsessed with it. But there's no point in even going on with it. It's just the same old, same old, same old as all the other years we've talked on the air. I've talked many times about the big agenda to sterilize males. There's many ways to do it. Chemicals are the easiest. They do it on dogs, in fact. And um, they knew that in the late 1800s what bisphenol A and, um, and other chemicals did to the, to the male fetus in the womb. Uh, between the age of 8 and 12 weeks is crucial for normal development of testes, testosterone, and all the rest of it. So they managed to put bisphenol A and so on and a lot into women's cosmetics, uh, which goes through the skin. Insufflation, they call it. Cancer rise and sperm quality fall due to chemicals. And I've also put up links before in the archive section uh, on, uh, uh, from different shows and articles. Very good one from the, C- the CBC might be put up again tonight if I can find it, if it's still up there. They pulled it off the first time I mentioned it. But it says, um, sperm quality significantly deteriorated and t- t- testicular cancers increased over recent years. A Finnish study says, a new Finnish study, it's in the International Journal of Andrology and looked at men but, but born between 79 and 1987. University of Turku as research suggests environmental reasons, particularly exposure to industrial chemicals, may be behind both trends. It's also, by the way, in the food. The chemicals are in your food. I hope you understand that. UK experts said chemicals may affect development of male babies. The Finnish men were studied as they've previously been shown to have some of the highest sperm counts in the world. And they did, but I knew they'd get round to them eventually. But scientists were never sure if this was because of their genetics or because they were exposed to fewer harmful chemicals. I would also add inoculations to the list as well. Researchers looked at three groups of men who reached the age 19 between 1998 and 2006. Men who were born in the late 1980s had lower sperm counts than those born in the beginning of the decade. Total sperm counts were 227 million for men born in 79 to 81, 202 million for those born in 1982 to 83, and 165 million for men born in 1987, respectively. Uh, it says, um, it says right in the journal, the researchers led by Professor Jorma Topari said, these simultaneous and rapidly occurring adverse trends, meaning plummets, suggest that the underlying causes are environmental and as such preventable. They won't prevent it, folks, because it's the agenda at depopulation. And the last Rockefeller uh, group meeting that they had says we must go into rapid depopulation. Our findings further necessitate the efforts to identify reasons for the adverse trends in the reproductive health to make preventative measures possible. So they go into the usual things, but they don't go into where it's coming from. Uh, they know where it's coming from at the very top, of course, but they won't mention it here, I'm sure. 
But anyway, there's another uh, study to just to bolster up the fact they're taking country down one after another. And I think Britain was the first one to plummet after the polio inoculation and then the chemicalized food. And now it's the GM food in Canada and uh, it's plummeted there too. And one of the fastest growing businesses happens to be the infertility clinics. And that's not coincidence either, obviously. See, war has been declared upon the public for an awful long time. And the only enemy those at the top have ever uh, really had are the general public. That's why they put so much effort to make sure you're entertained, you're given fake, misleading news. Uh, you've been brainwashed to believe that you vote people in who represent you. And, never, and you never learn. It's quite amazing how, how repetition will make you never learn uh, that something stinks with the whole system. All through your life. People keep voting for the same parties and same people. We wouldn't be in this mess we're in today if it worked a hundred years ago. It didn't then either. It wasn't meant to work. It's the people who select politicians that's important. It's also like uh, Stalin said, it's, I don't care about the votes and who votes for whom. I only care about the ones who count them. That's how it really is. That's how it really is. Now, Prince Andrew, who has his uh, pervy pals, I don't know if this is just a sideline too to distract us, nothing will ever come out of it. And it says, Andrew brazens it out, Prince visits school as David Cameron, the Prime Minister, pledges full support and row over the paedophile pal. So this big paedophile pal is a big player. He trains uh, children from a very young age, male and female, uh, to even be ones in between if they want to, to satisfy his customers and his big pals. And it says, um, Prince Andrew today received the full backing of David Cameron after Downing Street said he was doing an important job as a UK trade envoy. Remember, remember his wife came out, Fergie, and says that it's for, for meeting him and getting a chance to meet him to get some trade off him, you have to pay £500,000 uh, and she'd arrange a meeting with Andy. You know. It's all corrupt. That's normal business for them. The Prime Minister's spokesman issued the backing following a series of allegations against the Duke of York, centered on his relationship with billionaire paedophile Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) A paedophile billionaire. Uh, The Prince today visited an East London school in the headquarters of Crossrail, where he appeared unaffected by the row in which he's embroiled. You know what this is all about, though? You see, this is a time now to normalize paedophilia until it's no longer a deviancy. Remember, as I said before, the, uh, every few years they lower the, st- the national censor uh, boards uh, for movies, television, and so on. And I've read some of the articles from the papers where in 2001 they said they'd won the rights for homosexuals and they'd put more homosexual program on television. Recently they, they said they're going to put more bare asses on the television, by the way. They, they passed the, the, the lower their standards again. But they also said in the first one in 2001 that they would um, next push for bestiality and intergenerational sex. So this is what this is all about, folks. You're, you're so jaded and corrupted yourselves by watching endless television, not knowing you're becoming corrupted, but you are, uh, that it's, you're not outraged by anything anymore. And it's time now to put more and more of this into the limelights and say, my God, what's your problem? If a child agrees, what's the problem with it? And you'll hear all these arguments coming out uh, in the near future uh, to, to make up your mind for you via the media.
<laughs> you know, I, I used to wonder, I, these old science fiction movies, uh, to be a science fiction writer of any merit, you have to uh, attend the Futurist Club. And you'll find that it was set up by people like Rothschild and Rockefeller, funded it into existence, by the way, and like all the other novels and so on that you read, like H.G. Wells says, very important to write novels, he says, because it alters people's opinions on things. Fiction is the best method. That's why it's used primarily now in the visual arena, but uh, before, so it's, and it's still used in novels today. I think most novelists in Canada live on government grants, as long as they write in all the politically correct new ideas. But they all mentioned uh, the coming scenarios of a police state in, in every movie for many, many, many decades now. And that's to get you used to the idea that it's coming, you see, so that you will not react to, to uh, much in horror when it's fully in, in your face. You simply obey. We've all seen the folk, too, getting scanned at airports. That's getting shown ad nauseum to make sure that you know what to do, and you will do that round and say, wait a minute, this is disgusting. You see? No, you'll behave the way that our passengers did, and that's really to condition you that this is inevitable. Here's the latest con to get cash in. Roadblocks are set up to catch drivers smoking in their cars. Police roadblocks have been set up to catch drivers who are breaking the law. Breaking the law. You understand they can make anything a law? They could make rapid breathing a law if they want to. You understand that? That's a fact. This is by smoking at the wheel of their company vehicle. So there's some roadblocks to set the, catch the drivers who are breaking the law. The law made it illegal to smoke in all vehicles used primarily for businesses' purposes for more than one person. And I'll read some of this when I come back from this break. Hi, folks. We're back, cutting through the matrix. You know, this this constant training in the public, as this scientific indoctrination and training of the public for behavior modification, has no bounds. Understand? They will not stop at any level. And eventually, they'll be in your homes to tell you how to live, and they'll have cameras up in your home. They've already got them in a lot of homes in Britain, and they actually watch uh, the families, people who have been. Oh, suspected of possible, maybe, uh, hearsay type, uh, child abuse or something like that. They put cameras up and watch their every move. This is the wonderful, brave new world you're in. Back to this, uh, smoking hunt, the witch hunt for smokers in their cars. It says, they will even hunt for cigarette butts in the ashtrays and smell the air inside the vehicles in order to clamp down on the outlawed practice of having illicit cigarettes. Illicit cigarette use. <gasps> Workers were banned from smoking in their company cars as part of the Health Act introduced in 2006. That law made it legal in all vehicles used primarily for business purposes by more than one person. Anyone caught breaking the law faces a £50 fixed penalty or a fine of a fine or a possible court conviction which carries a £200 fine. As I say, this is behavior modification. Is that what you vote people in for, to, so that they can get their little psychologists together and alter all of your behavior? Is that what government's for? Is it? When was that uh, put out there as some official part of its its purpose? Hmm? When? I guess I must have blinked there. 
And the EU uh, parliaments, uh, this massive, again, Sovietized conglomerate that's soaking like a sponge all the tax money from all the countries around about it to feed its stinking people who run it. And I say stinking because they're fat, ugly, arrogant, and uh, they're gangsters, actually. That's what they are. They're gangsters. The money is just a black hole going into the only places it goes into funnels, which they understand because they've got the keys to them. No one else knows where it goes. The EU lists ban on genetically modified feed for it, so they get in the, into the food chain, into the humans now, because every country voted against it. So they, they've been overruled, put into the animals first, and then it comes into the humans. British farmers could soon be given access to GM animal feed after the EU voted to relax its zero-tolerance policy to contaminated feed being imported into Europe. Contaminated feed, so that's okay. It marks a step change in the EU's approach to GM and comes following warnings of feed shortages and inflated prices, with importers increasingly wary of shipments being turned away from ports in the EU. Europe currently imports about 80% of its animal feed, much of it from GM-growing countries in North and South America. See, the corporations run the world, and they just get what they want, you see. At a meeting this week, the EU's Standing Committee on Food Chain Animal Health agreed to allow up to 0.1% of non-EU-approved GM in feed imports. Well, it'll skyrocket. They won't, they won't go along with that. And um, that will get, get eaten by the people, and that will make you further sick, uh, earlier deaths, lots more cancers, and more sterility. I just thought I'd just throw that, that fact in there because it happens to be a fact for those who have been following it for maybe the last 20-odd years, because it is. And then, again, too, since America is trying to copy the National Health Service system of bare bones minimum, just look at Britain. National Health Service cuts our our manager's top priority for the year ahead. They're going to slash it to the bone. That's what you've got in store for the U.S. too, if you go that way. From Hamish and myself from Ontario, Canada... It's good night to me, your God or your gods go with you.